This message first aired on the radio on November 19, 2003. We're in the Book of Romans. We've been studying the Book of Romans for a couple of weeks now. We're going to go for about five more weeks. And I have a little unusual agenda today. I don't think I did that good a job yesterday, and I want to compensate. We're in a very difficult passage of Scripture, very logical, reasonable arguments. And I don't think I did a good job with those arguments, so I'm going to review them a little bit. And if God's taking all this trouble to persuade us that we're all sinners, that all have sinned, and that's where we're headed, we're headed to the persuasion of God that we are all sinners. Now, we all know that anyway, but God wants us to be reasonable and logical about it so that we can work out in a reasonable way in our thoughts that the only logical thing is that salvation from our sins is by grace through faith. If that's the only reasonable answer, then we have to follow the argumentation of the book of Romans a little more carefully than I laid it out. Now, I don't say that I mistaught it. I didn't. I agreed with myself. I just don't think I was as plain as I could have been yesterday. And so I want to recapsule for the first part of our show today the broadcast, I want to recapitulate, as it were, the arguments of the first part of Romans chapter 3. As a preacher, this is my prerogative. Preachers have the prerogative of re-preaching the same message. They can just do it again. Now, some guys memorize their message and re-preach the same message two or three times on a Sunday. I don't actually get that. I don't know why they don't just videotape it and play it. But that's not what I'm talking about. So let's go back to Romans chapter 3 today. Well, we're going to be in Romans 3 no matter what, but let's go back to the first part of Romans 3. And maybe you didn't hear the broadcast, and so this is just the first time through for you with me. But in any case, we'll go back here to Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And the question is, what advantage does the Jew have? Now, we found that the Gentile was a sinner without the law, and then we found out in chapter 2 that the Jew was also a sinner with the law, and that there was a different way of prosecuting the Jew. The Gentile, you prosecuted him by the law written on his heart, by what he knew in his own heart. The Jew, you prosecuted him out of the law that God gave them, and you found out that both are sinners. Now, the question arises then, question arises, as we brought the Jew under sin also. It's a logical question. Well, what advantage, if any, does a Jew have? And that is the question raised in Romans 3, verse 1. And I want to also, to those who are trying to redefine what a Jew is, and they're out there in some number today, people trying to redefine what a Jew is, trying to tell you that when the Bible says Jew, it just means tribe of Judah. That's one of the most obvious and often repeated mistakes and you're really conscious errors by those who would do despot to the Word of God. They have a different agenda, and they'll get to it. If you, if you start buying into their assumptions, they'll get to their agenda, which more or less is that they're Israel. But in any case, it says, What advantage has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, here we find that there's an equation between those who are circumcised and those who are Jews, as chosen by God. Now, God gave Abraham circumcision, and those who followed circumcision, which is, by the way, 
aright according to the flesh. Those who followed it were through Israel. Now, is there any advantage, therefore, in being Israel? Is there any advantage of being a Jew? I just point out here that all the tribes were circumcised. They all practiced circumcision, circumcision given to all the Jews, all of Israel, and so not just the tribe of Judah. And I also want to point out that we've already read that he is not a Jew, which is one inwardly. Now, that's a true Jew, okay? He's not one that's outwardly, excuse me, by circumcision in the flesh, but one who's inward. And so we have this idea of who's truly a Jew in the sense of the Israel of God and who is just a Jew outwardly in the sense of Israel. And then we're going to get in Romans to the Israel of God, and we're going to find out that the Israel of God not does not include any Gentiles, but is a subset of Israel according to the flesh. Well, I, that's why I'm setting that up and making this little point on the way. But what advantage does the Jew have? The Jew has an advantage in every way. The Jew is advantaged in every way because he has the Word of God. Now, that we've covered that. I think we covered that pretty well. But the Word of God is profitable with all. It's profitable for everything. It has its specific purposes, instruction, correction, so forth. But the Word of God is profitable in every way. And yesterday we talked about you could be a better shortstop if you had the Scriptures. And you could be a better carpenter, and you can be a better computer guy, and you can be a better housewife, and you can be a better child. And you can be a better anything, and the Word of God will give you advantages, period, in whatever endeavor you care to name in life. Now, here are the arguments now about the advantage of the Jew. It's okay, so the Jew has the advantage because he has the Word of God, but what really is that advantage? And what about the Word of God? Because what if some don't believe? This is verse 3 now, the argument of verse 3. What if some don't believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now we see the testimony, we might say the testimony of the Jew. The Jews' unbelief, now the Jews don't believe the Bible, there are many that don't. What if some, Scripture here says some, what if some didn't believe? Nationally, of course, Israel rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, yet some believed, and some didn't. But nationally, nationally, when they receive Messiah, all Israel will believe. That's yet in the future. There's a day coming when they'll look upon the one who they pierced, and they'll receive him. But that's future. Meantime, some didn't believe. What did their unbelief do to the word of God? That's the question. Did their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, because God brought his salvation by grace through faith, and he brings it that way, by faith in Christ, if they don't believe does that alter the power of God unto salvation that the gospel is? The answer to that is, God forbid. God forbid that just because I do not take advantage of something offered, that the offer itself is defective. That's the argument. And so the answer to that is, God forbid, and specifically, it's this. Men are wrong, God is not wrong. It says, let God be true, but let every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest 
overcome when thou art judged. Now that's a quotation out of Psalm 51. The penitent in Psalm 51, we believe to be David, as he prays in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And uh, in his contrite prayer recorded in, in Psalm 51, David prays, among other things, in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he said, I against thee, well, he begins with verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So here he says, I admit my sins, my deeds, but my sin, that is the, the my nature of being perverse, is always in front of me against thee, thee only have I sinned. Sin is a transgression against God foremost. And he says, thee only, as it's come down to the fact that he sinned against God. Now he says this, I've done evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when you speak, and be clear when you judge. In other words, I'm finding myself a sinner so that you're right to judge me, and therefore others. And so now, here's the argument of Rome, and say, well, some didn't believe. Does their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And the answer is no, it doesn't. In fact, their unbelief doesn't make the faith of God without effect. God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. And now we point out that the liar's testimony, when he's honest with himself about being a liar, in the case of David, he testifies that he's a liar, and that certifies that God is true. So, in other words, God forbid, men are liars, God is true. So now the next point that the apostle writes to us, if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? Another really perverse thought. Now, if we realize that our own admission that we're sinners points out that God is righteous when we're not, does that somehow meritorious to us that, you know, we're sinners, we admit we're sinners, and because we're sinners, we testify that God is not a sinner, and somehow that now commends us? And, of course, that's a foolish thought. In fact, it's a foolish thought. It says, though we commend God as righteous when we declare ourselves to be unrighteous, we certainly don't disqualify him from judging unrighteousness. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? And the answer to that question is he couldn't. He can't. If somehow we become righteous by acknowledging that we're unrighteous, if that makes us righteous, then God can't judge the unrighteous. And so that's not reasonable. So neither our honesty about being sinners, nor our acknowledgement of our own unrighteousness makes an advantage to us. In other words, the law pointing out that we're unrighteous, we read it in the Psalms, for example, that, that David's a sinner, we read there he's a sinner, that, that doesn't help us any. It also doesn't help us when we read in the Scripture that God is right. That doesn't help us in, any either, because God will judge us. Now, it tells us further, if the truth of God has more abounded, or we might say become more persuasive, if the truth of God, if God's truth, becomes more persuasive, because I acknowledge that I'm a liar, is that meritorious? Is that meritorious? Do we now say, well, let's just continue on in that, because the more we sin, the greater God's goodness is displayed. In other words, the blacker we become as a background, the brighter God looks. 
So isn't that now meritorious? As some say, let's do evil, the good may come. And Paul was slanderously reported to teach that. He did not teach that. And the answer to that is no, that also is not meritorious. So then, now the question, of course, still is, what advantage has the Jew? Well, what the advantage of the Jew is, he has the word of God, but he is not advantaged over the Gentile in being better than the Gentile. And that's the final statement. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, because it's been proven before that Jew and Gentile are all under sin. Now, we'll pass by what we covered a bit yesterday, verses 10 through 18 of Romans 3, where we find repeated scriptures, very profitable to look up and read, by the way, and to understand how it is that the dispensation of the law proved Israel to be sinners, and we covered that in about, oh, 50 lessons. I think we took about 10 weeks to go through the dispensational law prior to this. If you'd like to hear that study, it's on the archive at www.biblestudy.net. We'll send you out audio CDs. If you can't listen to that archive, we'll send you out MPEGs. We'll even send you out tapes. But you have to go to the website and click on that and request them. But one thing we find out through the scriptures in Romans 3:10 through 18, especially if we go look at the references, no question about it, Israel, bunch of sinners. So all are under sin, and we discussed briefly, and we'll mention again, that being under sin is different than being under sins. Sins are deeds. And to try to extinguish them one at a time and to look at the problem as sins that spin off is to ignore the problem of the poison within. The problem looks like sins, but the problem actually is sin. That is, it's the nature of sin, and we'll come to that now as we look at Romans three nineteen and following. Now, we know that what things soever the law says, it says that to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So you read those previous scriptures from 10 through 18, and you'll find out that the law says these things to bring those under the law, under sin, that their mouths might be stopped. Now that's one of the things that God does, is he's in the mouth-stopping business. He's in the mouth-stopping business. We're going to see that, especially in Romans 4 and Romans 5. We're going to find out that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh has found that there's no boasting allowed before God. Man's mouth is stopped. So in a broad sense, the question is, what is man's testimony of God, or what does man say of God? The man who qualifies to receive the salvation of God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ says that he himself is condemned and that God is true, and then he will accept the Lord Jesus Christ is his Savior. That's what any reasonable man who sees the truth about himself and God will do. Now, the unreasonable man is going to be busy trying to establish himself, and he's going to be busy trying to boast on himself, and he will seek the praise of man rather than the praise of God, and he will go about his wicked ways, indulging himself as if he were God. And that is what Romans teaches us. Now, we see that God's plan is to get everybody guilty, and boy, does he do a good job of it, and we're going to look at that in a little more detail when we come back, and we're going to start to see how salvation really works. Why don't you listen through this next message as well? 
as we turn to Romans 3, verse 20, and we come to the whole conclusion, now that all are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike, and that the law actually tells them under the law that they are sinners, and the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike, guilty before God, we read verse 20, and it's a broad conclusion, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And now we go a little bit here to the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law never was to give life. The law itself called the living oracles elsewhere in Scripture. The law was alive itself, the living word of God. It was alive. And it had a glory to it. It had a glory to it. We learn in Second Corinthians that it had a glory that was a passing glory. Moses, when he spoke with God and got the commandments from God, his face shone, but he had to veil his face so that those who looked upon him wouldn't see that that glory passed and faded. Well, through the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what we learn from the law. So it isn't that it's, the law is not profitable. It just isn't able to impart life. It just isn't what we need. It's not that the law is useless. It's not that the law is wrong. It's not that there's something the matter with the law in itself. There's only something the matter with the law insofar it is not what we need. Here's a simple example. You're very thirsty. You've gone quite a while without drinking anything. You're very, very thirsty. You come to me. You say, I'm very, very thirsty. I said, oh, poor you. I know how you feel. I've been thirsty. Here, have a sandwich. Well, there's nothing the matter with that sandwich. Hey, I, I don't want the sandwich. What's wrong with the sandwich? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the sandwich except that I'm thirsty and a sandwich doesn't quench my thirst. So it's not that there's something the matter with the law. It's just not what you need. Now, the law itself is alive, but that's no different than me. I'm alive. I'm alive however you look at it. If you want to look at it that I'm still sucking wind, I'm alive in that sense, although it could go at any time. And if you want to look what really is life, eternal life, I also have eternal life. So I'm alive, but here's your problem with me or my problem for you. I have life, but I can't impart it. I'm healthy enough. If I go visit a sick person, I can't infuse him with health. I know there are those who think they can. I think there are some crazies walking around who believe that they can extend health to somebody else, but you can't. Uh, we know this from nature. You take a bad apple, stick it in with a bunch of good ones, and do the good ones team up and heal the bad one, whatever their numbers have to be? 100 to 1,000 to 1. Can 1 million really nice-looking apples take care of one rotten one? No. In fact, one rotten apple will spread his mush to all 1 million great apples. A sick man will make the rest of us sick, and we will not make him healthy. Nature testifies to the fact that we cannot impart life or health, or really we cannot impart intelligence. We can't impart anything. We can't impart virtue. We can't impart anything good. All we can do is corrupt. The law itself, uncorrupt, 
Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely right. Perfect in all of its ways, but unable to impart life. But I guess the problem really is this. That's not really a problem with the law unless you think that life comes from the law. But it doesn't. What comes from the law is something else. The knowledge of sin. The detailed knowledge of sin. In fact, we get to know about sin from the law. It says, don't do this, and then you go, oh, I do that. Gee, I must be wrong. Of course, the wicked man, he goes, no, there's something wrong with that. Who says? Who says I shouldn't have a tattoo? Who, who says I shouldn't put crazy piercings all over my body? Who says that it's wrong to take the Lord's name in vain? Who says I should obey my parents? Who says I shouldn't steal? See, God says so. Well, some of those things are written on your heart. Maybe some others aren't. But the law is written to define sin and to give us detailed knowledge of sin. And, by the way, nothing wrong with that. I mean, one of the big problems in life is letting people know their big problems in life. Sometimes you have to meditate about it and think about it. Now, how am I going to approach this person to tell him about his big problems in life? Whatever area of life it is. I've spent time in uh, various work environments. I know that's unusual for a preacher, but I have spent a lot of time in various work environments, including the unhappy task of being a consultant. I didn't say counselor. I said consultant. And uh, as a consultant, a lot of times you have the unhappy task of telling somebody, in fact, most of the time, if you approach your work correctly, you have the unhappy task of telling people what they do not want to hear. Sometimes you have to tell people, well, you know, this person that you depend on a lot, yeah, you've got to get rid of him. He's not doing it, whatever it is. And as a consultant, you have to think about how am I going to tell this in a way that will truly bring the knowledge to this person that he needs about his problem. With the law, it's one nice thing about the Scripture, God already handled that. And from the Scripture is the knowledge of sin. Now, from the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what we learn. What we do not learn from the law is the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God is revealed not from the law, but the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Christ. It doesn't violate the law. It answers the law. The law says, you got a problem. The gospel says, i got a solution. I've got a problem. God has a solution. Now, here's what it tells us. By the deeds of the law, there shall be no one justified in his sight. Some people think that the law is to be broken out into pieces and separated, and you can have this piece and not that piece. So uh, many people will take the law and say, well, there's the ceremonial law, and there is the, what, punitive law? But the ceremonial law is only there to inform you that you're due punishment according to the punitive law. And so it's very interesting how people break this out and say, well, this doesn't relate to that, this is fulfilled, this isn't, whatever, whatever. 
but the ceremonial law was just to bring to the mind of the comer to it a meditation about his guiltiness of the rest of the law and the need for a solution that never happened. So the one who was convicted of his sins would realize, I have to bring a sacrifice as he now comes to the ceremonial portions. He said, well, now I've sinned. The consequence is this, is i got to get a sacrifice. He goes out, he finds some doves, or he finds a cow, or whatever he can afford. He brings it to the priest. They spill the blood of it all right in front of him. The fat goes to the Lord. The right shoulder goes to the Levite. Pieces are roasted by fire. This guy gets his own portion, piece of his own sacrifice back, and his meditation is, well, I had to go through all this. And, okay, so that's now my sacrifice for the sins that I've done here recently. But he goes away with the knowledge that he has to go back. And he goes away with the consciousness that his sins are still there, and he still has them. Because it was impossible for any of that to take away his sins. None of that took away his sins, or neither did it satisfy the problem of his sin in his nature. And so the law merely brought knowledge of sin and a more knowledge of sin and more and more knowledge of sin. But now, Romans three twenty one. now. And let me tell you, my friend, you can be glad that it's still now. It's still now. Now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, is evident, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets witness that the righteousness of God is without the law. And that's going to be the great argument of Romans, that the righteousness of God is evident by the prophets and the law, and that the righteousness of God comes without the law. And that's going to be the great argument of the fourth chapter. What did Abraham find? Well, Abraham didn't find a law. Abraham didn't have the law. But he found that the righteousness of God came, as we've learned already, by grace through faith. Because the just shall live, not by the law or the deeds of the law, but by faith and faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Wow, what a wonderful thing. Well, I jump ahead, I jump back, get a little excited. But this is the truth about the Word of God today. This is the truth about... That's why the gospel of Christ is good news. That's why it's a gospel. That's why it's not just news. That's why it's good news. It's good news because you're walking around with all bad news. And that's what distinguishes the gospel from the law. The law is correct, but bad news for you. I'm reminded of the bad news bears. They used to say it was bad news for the other team. All right, a little hokey. But that's what the law is, bad news for you. And I say, what does the law mean? Bad news for, and then just put your name in there. Because you're going to lose with the law. And you need to know that because you're a sinner. And you have sins, and you're a fountain of sin. You're a fountain of sins. You have a nature of sin. 
you can't change your own nature. That's right. Now you see your helplessness. But, but God. So now, is still now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested, is obvious, it is plain, being witnessed by, and it is consistent and witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. For there's no difference, that is to say, no difference between Jew and Gentile. To all who believe, the righteousness of God comes by faith in Jesus Christ, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which we have before proven in the book of Romans, in the first part. So, the righteousness of God is by faith of Jesus Christ unto everybody. Whoever believes, period. Not believes and, but just who believes. Ah, that's a change of mind. Of course it's a change of mind from not believing to believing. That's what repentance is, a change of mind from not believing to believing. It's not some deed you do. It's not some I'm sorry. It's not an apology. You don't even have to apologize. God doesn't even expect your apology. He expects you to change your mind, but he's the one who gives you everything that changes your mind. Here in the gospel, what does God want from you? Nothing. And that's the good news. He doesn't want anything. What saves is the work of faith in it and in him. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And here's what the Bible says. Being justified freely by his grace, by his gift. We have a series that we did called The Gift and the Prize, and so many Christians today confuse the prize of the high calling of God with the gift of God, which is eternal life. But this is all about his gift. God will freely justify you by his grace. You say, well, is grace some substance? Well, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about grace in just a minute. Don't go away. This is important and you need it. So we have this great news. And it isn't that God has, and this is part of the good news, it is not that God has somehow become partial to some and not others, that somehow God finds some group of people better than another group of people, or within a group God finds this one here that just does a little better than that one, and so he's going to flunk the rest into the lake of fire, and he's going to pass a few on into heaven. Not at all. God goes through great lengths to shut up all under sin and come to this conclusion that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody's short. Everybody's lacking. Everybody's in the same large boat in need, and in desperate need, by the way, of the salvation which is provided only freely by his grace. So it tells us in verse 4, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And now we have the word redemption stated here. It's a good old Bible word, redemption. And we can read it about ten times in the Bible. This word, redemption. This word that means to pay for and to buy back 
or to purchase back. It is to pay a ransom. It is to purchase back something that has been hocked. We're all in the pawn shop of the devil, you might say, sold under sin. The evidence of it is your sin. We've been sold into the slave market of sin. And Jesus Christ has purchased us with his own blood. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. It's the old, old story, but it's a wonderful story freely to us. Freely to us. Freely justified by his grace. Yes, yes, his salvation, his redemption is free to us, costly to him. We always have to remember that when you think it's too free and too easy, remember it wasn't free for him and it wasn't easy for him. So the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth. Now God has set forth Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, and this propitiation word is another Bible word. It's a cover, but it's not merely a, it's not a hiding kind of a cover. It's a securing kind of cover. The propitiation was the covering, for example, that was on the ark that Moses had. It was smeared stuff that kept the water out. The propitiation was a cover over the ark of the covenant, and blood was sprinkled. So we found that the ark of the covenant, for example, blood was sprinkled on it as a propitiation or as a cover, a preserving, a saving. And here we find that Jesus Christ is set forth to be the one who saves us, the propitiation, the one who saves us or secures us, who keeps judgment from coming to us through faith. And here it says, through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood. Blood, And so we're reminded, for example, of the sprinkling of the blood out of the law that was on the ark and all the holy things, and that without blood nothing was sanctified. And without the shedding of blood there has never been a remission of sins, nor a picture of remission of sins. Every time God even pictured the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins, it involved blood. I'm amazed but interested, and it makes sense in this evil age which we live, that the all references to the blood of Jesus Christ are being expunged from Christian thought. It's being taken out of Christian hymns. Why do you think I so often play the song, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb, or There is Power in the Blood of the Lamb, which we'll hear later today. Why do you think so? Because God has set forth Jesus Christ to be our securer, the securer of our salvation, which he bestows upon us freely on the basis of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you say the faith in the blood of Christ. Yes, without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no redemption. He paid for us with his blood. Yeah, we're all one blood shut up under sin, and he shed his blood. He became a man, and he shed his blood to become a new federal head. 
So do you want to be in Adam and Noah and go with whatever you think you got going for you, or do you want to be in Jesus Christ and be under his blood? That was the the great turnabout of the statement of the Jews as they demanded of Caesar that he crucify the Lord. They say, his blood be on us and on our children. Well, you can take that two ways. They meant his blood guiltiness, but of course, God meant better. God meant the blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried to God from the ground and accused Cain as a murderer, and he was therefore due death. Jesus Christ's blood cries from heaven to save us from our own sins. To declare, as it says in verse 25 of Romans 3, to declare his righteousness for the remission or the passing over of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, here's exactly what God did. He set forth his propitiation through faith in his blood, declaring his righteousness, God's righteousness, to the end that sins would be remitted. That sins would be, and this word remitted, means that sins would be passed over. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. As Song said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Just as God now hearkens our thoughts back to what the law teaches about the Passover, and if they put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels, the death angel would pass over them. So if we put our trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who was the perfect sacrifice taking away the problem of our wicked nature and giving to us a new one, by the way, through faith in his name, He is our Passover. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that is, that God might be just or righteous, and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just tell you this about that. God proves himself to be just by saving you on the basis of faith in Christ. God is unfair to save you any other way. And he doesn't save any other way. But God is fair to all because Christ died for all. And so God demonstrates himself to be more righteous than we are through the plan of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. He shows himself to be just and the justifier He's the justifier. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous by God. It means to be declared finally safe from your sins and from your sin. Finally, permanently safe from your sin, to be declared righteous. That means that you have passed, you've already been judged for your sins, your judgment upon Jesus Christ, and you're not going to be judged twice for your sins. That's why it tells us in John chapter 5, the one who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ has already passed through death into life. 
Now, what's the result of this plan of God? What is the result of the plan of God of freely justifying sinners on the basis of his own goodness? Well, the result is verse 27. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. God shut the mouths of everybody by showing them, each one, that they're under sin. That shut their mouths. So where's boasting? It's excluded. Not only did God shut up our mouths, he kept our mouths shut as pertaining to our own selves. And, of course, this is God's display. This is our testimony to God. Yes, I'm a wicked sinner. God saved me by his grace. He's the justifier of the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ. So boasting is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. So he says, now what principle? And here we have what we call the law of faith or the principle of faith. And so now we understand that there's a principle here. There are two principles that we need to look at. One principle is the principle of the works of the law. Is that the one that is established by God? Absolutely not. In fact, the works of the law demonstrate you and become the knowledge by you that you're a sinner. So God is establishing a different principle than the works of the law. He is establishing the faith principle. And it never becomes disestablished. It never becomes disestablished. God is establishing the principle of by grace through faith, which he calls here in Romans 3, verse 27, the law of faith. The wording is used there so that we understand that the law has done its work, which is to persuade us being a sinner. And now there's no more law of works according to the law, but there is this established principle, which is called the law of faith or the faith principle. The by grace through faith, that's the principle God establishes, and he doesn't disestablish it ever in any way. So we find also in Colossians 2, for example, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, and I would that Christians knew that. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, is he a God of the Jews only, or is he also God of the Gentiles? Yes, he's God of the Gentiles also. There's one God which justifies the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. And so are we making the law void because of faith? Absolutely not. God forbid we're establishing the law for exactly its purpose. So what a wonderful argument this is, as we've concluded here, the first three chapters of the book of Romans, eminently reasonable, commendable to any mind. You sinner out there, now you know, you've heard, if you've listened, eminently reasonable. The only way God works is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and faith alone not works. Well, will you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you going to try to Go by your own power. And don't you realize that you're in a helpless state and that uh, your own power has gotten you to the place you are and that's not a very good place? Or do you realize this? 